This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We have a feeling that uh, the term karma is something that uh, we're not the only ones to think of in the past week. Now, technically, we don't know that it really is instant karma. This is karma that's been months in development. And as Stephen J. Harper pointed out to me in an email, it might not be karma at all. It might be more like the consequences of accumulating incompetence coupled with stunning arrogance. One week ago on this program, we were talking about the debate, the debacle of the debate. And oh my, how things have changed in just a few days. I was busy on Thursday night working on a website I'll tell you about momentarily when I got a call from, well, Edward McMillan, informing me of the fact that Donald Trump had now tested positive for COVID-19. We're pretty sure this is not the first you've heard of this. But uh, boy, does it bring to a head the things we've been talking about on this program for the past several months. And as Donald J. Trump was being helicoptered from the White House lawn to Walter Reed Hospital in Bethesda, our website, which takes a look at the ebb and flow of pandemic developments in America, and specifically Donald Trump's role in making everything so much worse, the website we can now reveal to you is... TrumpPandemic.net. It is still a work in progress. We very much hope to refine it in the next few days. But as it stands right now, there's some good information to review. The day after we got it up, I I sent a note to Stephen Harper, who will be returning this program in the next, I guess, week or two, telling him that your timelines were an indispensable resource for ours which is certainly true. I can't think of any single resource that was more valuable to us. And uh, Harper is definitely not done. Every week or so, he's been adding a new timeline. The day that Trump tested positive, although it, it may have been the second day and the second time that Trump tested positive, on Wednesday, September 30th, he almost prophetically put up a timeline under the headline, Crime Scenes, Trump's Super Spreader Rallies. It outlines in some detail the numerous rallies, which are a perfect setup to spread the COVID-19 bug, done from that infamous get-together in Tulsa forward in time to the present. Considering this president's downplaying of masks and social distancing, something we have chronicled again and again on this program, it seemed to many that it was only a matter of time before the bug might come to him. And so it was here on Thursday night, 1st of October, although in fact it was actually at 1 a.m. Friday morning on October 2nd, that Trump tweeted that he in fact did have the virus along with FLOTUS, (laughs) the first lady of the United States. 
which was the first time I'd ever seen that particular acronym. And by the way, I do want to mention at the onset here, isn't it odd that the First Lady and the President both test positive for COVID, after which the President goes to Walter Reed and Melania, I guess, went home. It seems the bulk of people in this nation who have tested positive for COVID with symptoms wind up going home. And in our second segment today, we're going to talk to someone who is in that exact boat. We think that the difference between what happens when John Q. Public shows up at a hospital with suspected COVID and uh, POTUS tests positive for COVID. Well, I mean, it's quite a difference. It's one thing for Trump to announce that he's leaving Walter Reed on Monday at 6.30 p.m. with the advice to the public, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. He just can't resist taking credit for what drugs and knowledge have been developed in this country since the outbreak of the pandemic. But as we'll talk about in, in, our, in our second segment today, there's a big difference between you or I catching the bug and seeking treatment and the president testing positive, feeling a bit lousy, according to some reports, being maybe a little short of breath, getting oxygen, and then having a marine helicopter show up on the White House lawn to ferry you to Walter Reed in Bethesda, Maryland. After which, a team of crack physicians descends upon you to give you the necessary diagnostic evaluations, which they have been very wary about informing the public. We presume the president uh, received a a chest X-ray and a CT scan, but they're just not telling us whether they did or what they found. Mr. Miller points out that one thing's for sure in all of this discussion of treatments of the president, hydroxychloroquine has not been mentioned. More than one wag suggested that they go to Houston and fish out uh, Stella Emanuel to fly her to Bethesda to see if she can't quote-unquote cure the president using that drug, which she says she did lots of times. Well, everybody. She cured everybody with it. Yeah, apparently Navy Commander Dr. Sean Conley had other ideas. He decided to go ahead and use the experimental polyclonal antibody treatment, followed by the promising antiviral remdesivir, which the president, I think, received three times. He was also placed on dexamethasone. Now, there's a great mystery at this point as, as to how sick the president really is. In photos, he doesn't look so hot. The doctors, of course, are putting a, a good face on this, saying, oh, no, he met all the criteria for being discharged, which... It's causing a lot of other docs to roll their eyes like, you know, you, 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 wouldn't, you wouldn't normally send the guy home, most likely, if he was seriously ill. And he apparently is rather seriously ill. He did have episodes where his oxygenation dropped to worrisome levels, something that they didn't want to answer the questions of when, when they were probed by reporters. They finally did admit, well, yeah, he did, he did drop a couple of times. Mark Meadows took reporters aside to say, look, he's really not out of the woods. This is serious, after which Trump was furious with him. That seems to be the case with anything to do with the Trump administration. The, the, <laughs> the data is confused and contradictory, and in many instances doesn't quite make sense. Here's a bit of reporting from Jim Acosta at CNN I, I had to laugh at. After Mark Meadows said to reporters, the president's vitals over the past 24 hours were very concerning and the next 48 will be critical in terms of his care. We are still not on a clear path to full recovery. A much less sanguine assessment than that of Dr. Sean Conley. Well, Trump was outraged. Apparently multiple sources leaked to the press that the president was mad at Meadows. Said Jim Acosta, 
The chief of staff is now viewed by Trump advisors as having damaged the credibility of the current medical briefings on the president's bout with the coronavirus, which causes us to say, you know, you really do hate to see the president's credibility being damaged. And of course, Conley, doing his duty as a good Navy commander, when asked about the remarks of Meadows, tried to blame the media, saying that the top aide's remarks had been, quote, misconstrued, unquote. I like the fact that Dr. Conley, when on Sunday was asked why it was he hadn't disclosed the president was administered oxygen, he said he wanted to, quote, reflect the upbeat attitude of the team, unquote. Adding, I didn't want to give any information that might steer the course of illness in another direction. Apparently, Dr. Conley is under the impression that if he says something that's not optimistic, it will have a bad effect on the president's health. But he added, in doing so, it came off that we're trying to hide something, which wasn't necessarily true. No, I I guess it wasn't necessarily true. But let's just say it wasn't necessarily untrue either. Anyway, on Sunday, the president evidently felt the need for some adulation from his public, so he got in a car with Secret Service agents and had them drive around so he could wave at his supporters. Doctors have criticized this for putting the Secret Service at risk needlessly for a photo op. And speaking of photo ops, no sooner does the president return to the White House on Monday evening when he goes up the steps and removes his face mask. Now, last Thursday, which seems like an eon ago, Thursday, October 1st, The word had gotten out that presidential aide Hope Hicks had tested positive for COVID. And it was known that she did go with the president to the debate in Ohio and evidently flew with him the next day to a rally, I think, in Minnesota, even though, as I understand it, she was known to be positive at that point. When the president first tested positive remains a bit of a mystery. The best evidence seems to suggest that he tested positive on Wednesday, September 30th. When he appeared on Fox News the next day and was asked about it, he said, well, I've taken a test and it's, it's pending right now, which was the test which showed that he was surely positive. And of course, in conjunction with the president's positive test, we have a slew of White House staffers and senators and other people relate to that Rose Garden press conference on Saturday, September 26th where the president introduced his pick for the Supreme Court, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, to the public. I think at last count, we're not sure about this, but at last count, apparently 11 people that attended that event have now tested positive. Some hours before he tweeted that he was positive, Trump attended a fundraiser in New Jersey, which evidently exposed lots of folks there to um, a man who was now shedding virus, a man who does not like to wear a mask or social distance. With time, we may understand more of how this all developed. And then again, knowing the Trump administration, with time, we may know less as the waters get muddied. The median time to show symptoms after exposure appears to be about five days. Dr. Anthony Fucci has reminded us of that, which is exactly right for the Rose Garden event on Saturday to being symptomatic on Thursday. Looking ahead to the future, by the way, since most people tend to shed the virus for the next 10 days... The president's going to be infectious till at least probably Saturday, October 10th. I have heard a report that seven of the nine people that were in the same room with Trump as part of the debate preparation have now tested positive, including Governor Chris Christie. Oh, and apparently it was the former New Jersey governor who suggested to Trump that he keep interrupting Biden because Biden has a bit of a stutter and that tends to fluster people that have a stutter.
In the month of October, it was the plan of Donald Trump and his White House aides to move the discussion in this country away from COVID virus onto uh, how the economy is, is what's well, going to do great any minute now. We do like the fact that at one of his recent rallies, Trump said that if he's reelected, he will get rid of the COVID pandemic. And, you know, we're thinking now would be a better time. But, hey, that's just us. I'm especially intrigued by the fact that Dr. Conley mentioned at one point on Saturday the president was just 72 hours into the diagnosis. That, that, that puts it back to midday Wednesday. If you will forgive me for speculating, and I hope you will, uh, I would like to speculate that the president was given a positive test on Wednesday and said, oh, that can't be right. But the next day when he tested positive a second time and started to not feel well, then he realized, well, he has it. This might be a good time to quote from a wonderful piece that appeared in the New York Times on the 4th of October. A piece by Annie Carney and Maggie Haberman. Starts out as follows. As America locked down this spring during the worst pandemic in a century, inside the Trump White House, there was the usual defiance. The tight quarters of the West Wing were packed and busy. Almost no one wore masks. The rare officials who did, like Matthew Pottinger, the deputy national security advisor, were ridiculed by colleagues as alarmist. President Trump at times told staff wearing masks in meetings to get that thing off, said an administration official. Everyone knew that Trump viewed masks as a sign of weakness, officials said, and that his message was clear. Quote, you were looked down upon when you would walk by with a mask, unquote. That's a quote from Olivia Troy, the top aide in the coronavirus task force, who resigned in August and has now endorsed former Vice President Joe Biden. And of course, in public, some of the president's favorite targets were mask-wearing White House correspondents. He told Jeff Mason of Reuters, Would you take it off? I can hardly hear you, in May. Then mocked Mason for wanting to be politically correct when he refused. Noted the Times, this past week, a White House long in denial confronted reality after Trump and the First Lady both tested positive for the virus, along with Hope Hicks, a top White House aide, and Bill Stepien, the Trump campaign manager, among others. The outcome appeared shocking, but also inevitable in a West Wing that assumed that a rapid virus test for everyone who entered each morning were substitutes for other safety measures like social distancing and wearing masks. Someone sent me a text on Thursday in the wake of Hope Hicks testing positive where there was a quote from the White House about how, well, you know, negative test you know, doesn't protect you. My reaction to that was, what kind of idiot would imagine that negative test would protect you? And apparently the answer to that is the Trump White House. The Time notes that Trump testing positive was the byproduct, former aides said, of the recklessness and top-down culture of fear that Trump created in the White House and throughout his administration. If you wanted to make the boss happy, they said, you left the mask at home. When the nation went into a lockdown in March, Trump was determined to play down the virus. He talked of reopening as soon as Easter, April 12th. He pushed states to lift restrictions early and pressured schools, churches, and businesses to go back to normal, all in the hope of saving his campaign. But behind the White House gates, Trump and his aides relied heavily on the daily rapid testing available to them. At times, Trump took numerous rapid tests throughout the day. Let that sink in. At times, Trump took numerous rapid tests throughout the day. The piece notes that aides were divided on the risk. Jared Kushner, the first son-in-law, 
and senior advisor, and Dan Scavino, the White House social media director, were among the least concerned, said colleagues. They viewed themselves as protected because of the testing available to them and maintained that getting the virus was not a death sentence. Colleagues said that newcomers to Trump's orbit, like Kayleigh McEnany, the White House press secretary, never wore a mask in his presence in what was interpreted by other staff members as an attempt to please her new boss. Anyway, it's worth reading this piece. It's in entirety, but I have one more quote from it I cannot resist. They note that on a policy level, the White House for months has been pressuring the Centers for Disease Control to play down the risk of the virus so the president could forge ahead with his desire to reopen schools, reinvigorate the economy, and continue to act as if the country had rounded the final turn when it came to the virus. And we'll have more to say about the CDC in a minute, but we do want to refer you to the excellent timelines of Stephen J. Harper on the BillMoyers.com website. We're enormously proud of the fact that our interview with Mr. Harper is on the Moyers site. For the better part of a week, we were on the splash page. Again, Harper's timelines were indispensable to our effort to create one, and, well, we think ours is pretty good. Two, check it out. We would send you to trumppandemic.net. Click on Timeline. Now, we right out of the gate, we're pretty clear where we stand on, on this website as regards Trump's mishandling of this pandemic. We start out by noting that 150,000 Americans would be alive today were it not for the missteps taken under Donald Trump. I've gotten some feedback from people saying that if I'm trying to reach out to, uh, to swing voters, people who are, you know, who like Trump, but maybe have some misgivings about him that I'm being way too strong in the position I'm taking. But I'm sorry, as a physician, I just don't know how you can avoid coming to the conclusions that we have come to. And while it is true, there would have been deaths in America once the coronavirus arrived on our shores. The fact of the matter is the catastrophe that is currently unfolding should not have happened and simply did not need to happen. Maeve Reston, writing for CNN, had this to say about it. For much of this year, Trump has spun an alternative reality about the dangers of coronavirus, disputing science and the efficacy of masks, downplaying the risks to the American people, and making false statements about how 99% of coronavirus cases in America are totally harmless, or that the virus affects virtually nobody. He encouraged his aides and advisors to live in that dangerous fantasy land, pushing his luck to the limits as late as this last week, when he again recklessly gathered thousands of unmasked Americans at his political rallies and packed the top officials in government into a Rose Garden ceremony. All the while, White House officials embraced the fallacy that administering rapid coronavirus tests frequently at the White House could provide a shield of immunity. The president's construct crumbled Friday when he was airlifted to Walter Reed. I have a photo in, in my left hand here of that, uh, a couple photos actually, of that Rose Garden ceremony. There's a couple things that are rather striking about it. Almost everybody in the first several rows at the event are maskless. These are the bigwigs. A fairly large number of people do have masks on. They're all in the back, in the press section. Senators Lee and Tillis, who subsequently tested positive for COVID-19, are in the second row on the left. But really strikes me is, what strikes me as odd is the fact that Senator Tillis is wearing a mask, and he still got COVID. Judging by the number of cases that have come out of presumably this event, it appears to be a super spreader event and a disease cluster which warrants further investigation. As mentioned on this program ad infinitum, 
The basis for dealing with a pandemic is to test for it, to contact trace individuals that have contracted it, and to isolate as necessary. But a New York Times article by Apoorva Mandavili and Tracy Tully, Tully notes that the White House is not, in fact, contact tracing in the wake of this super spreader Rose Garden event. Notes the paper, despite almost daily disclosures of new coronavirus infections among President Trump's close associates, the White House is making little effort to investigate the scope and source of its outbreak. The White House has decided, in fact, not to trace the contacts of guests and staff members at the Rose Garden celebration 10 days ago, and instead has limited its effort to notifying people who came in close contact with Trump in the two days before his COVID diagnosis on Thursday evening. It has also cut the Center for Disease Control, which has the government's most extensive knowledge and resources for contact tracing, out of the process. They note that contact tracing is an essential piece of any outbreak investigation and is a key to stopping the virus from spreading further, especially after a super spreader event where many people may have been infected. Any of the closely packed guests and staff members of the Rose Garden ceremony could have gone on to transmit the virus to many others. So the White House's decision not to investigate the cluster of infections and pinpoint the source has potentially devastating consequences for hundreds of people, according to several experts. They quote Dr. Joshua Barocas, public health expert at Boston University, who's advised the city of Boston on its contact tracing, saying this is a total abdication of responsibility by the administration. The idea that we're not involving the CDC to do contact tracing at this point seems like a massive public health threat. The piece notes that even the contact tracing efforts within the two-day window have been limited, consisting mostly of emails notifying people of potential exposure rather than the detailed phone conversations to warn anyone who may have been exposed, coach them on which symptoms to look for, and counsel them to isolate if they do begin to show symptoms. Aaron Sanders, a nurse practitioner and certified contact tracer in Boston, said, I I guess an email is a notification of exposure, but that is not contact tracing and not how a responsible public health agency handles a super-spreading cluster of a deadly virus. After Trump's diagnosis, an internal CDC memo on Friday asked the agency's scientists to be ready to go to Washington for contact tracing. But a request from the White House for assistance never came, according to two senior CDC scientists. Instead, the tracing efforts are being run by the White House Medical Unit, a group of about 30 doctors, nurses, and physicians' assistants, headed by Dr. Sean Conley, the White House physician, who has been the public spokesman for Trump's doctors. White House spokesman Judd Deere said that a robust contact tracing program was underway, led by the White House Medical Unit with CDC integration. By integration, he refers to an epidemiologist from the CDC detailed to the unit since March, which is according to the White House. But the White House has declined to name the scientist, and the CDC referred queries back to the White House. Two senior CDC scientists who asked not to be identified because they were not authorized to speak said they were unaware of such a role for the CDC within the White House. Anyway, I recommend reading the entire article. I I do have to add the quote from Dr. Thomas Frieden, who led the CDC under Barack Obama. He said, this is a cluster. 
What you want to do when there's a cluster is identify everyone who may have been exposed so they can be quarantined if appropriate and tested. And by doing that, you stop webs of transmission. It notes that the White House had relied on those rapid tests to screen anyone who might come into close contact with the president. But as noted, the tests are known to miss infections, especially early in the course of illness. Guests at the White House were told they could take off their masks if they tested negative. Said Dr. Frieden, testing is not your get-out-of-quarantine-free card. You can test negative in the morning and be infectious in the afternoon. And that is one reason I think we've had this cluster in the White House, an over-reliance on testing. And some experts have added they're particularly worried about the cooks, gardeners, security guards, stenographers, cleaning crew, and others who tend to be forgotten in all this. Said Dr. Barocas, I think it's immensely important we not just focus on Melania Trump right now and whatever senator comes down with it. It's not just the 400 people that work in the White House, it's their families that they go home to. The need for extensive contact tracing, if for no other reason to protect vulnerable communities that are second or three degree removed, is massively important. And indeed, Michael Shear, a White House reporter with the New York Times, uh, has noted that uh, He's pretty sure he was infected on the day President Trump announced his pick for the Supreme Court. But nine days later, he had not heard one word from the White House about any contact tracing efforts. Said Shear, nobody from the White House has said boo and asked anything about where I was, who I talked to, or who else I might have infected. Noted CNN Business, members of the press corps have generally taken more precautions than the White House officials during the crisis. Quoting Zeke Miller is saying, if you look around, you know, travel on Air Force One, the press is always wearing a mask, and that has been a requirement of, of ours for some months now. Shear noted on October 5th that the president chatted with reporters on Air Force One on the night of his Pennsylvania rally, which would have been on September 22nd. By the way, at the rally held in, in Pittsburgh, Trump mocked former Vice President Biden for wearing a face mask. On the night of that rally, anyway, the president chatted with reporters on Air Force One, and Shear noted he was not wearing a mask, and he spoke to us for about 10 minutes off the record. Anyway, we do need to take a short break. I do note a valuable article that was sent me about how to conduct contact tracing. We'll talk about that probably late in the next segment. I do want to thank the person that sent that to me, which was, oddly enough, Edward McMillan. Yay! You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. By all means, stick around.